Good to see all of you here tonight. Call you blessed. You ready to get into the Word? You have your Bibles? All right. Whether they're leather bound or or fake leather bound or uh, electronic or hardback or paperback, whatever they may be, it's what's in the pages, right? And so, uh, praise the Lord. Well. Just saw a phone come out of a pocket. It just reminded me to ask you to silence your phones, put your phones on, uh, vibrate, whatever is necessary. That way, if, there's a, if, we, if we come across a sweet moment, we're not, that sweetness isn't distracted by a, a phone like mine. I used to have a, a barking dog. <laughs> Do you all remember? It went off in church one day, I think. Yeah, in a very sweet moment. Roof, 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 roof. And I'm thinking, that's oh, me. <laughs> not good, not good. All right. Preparing for the Lord's coming. That's what we're doing. We're preparing for the Lord's coming. I suppose we could, you know, my original title, still there. What does the Lord want us to know about the end times? Still an important thing. But really, as it began to, to boil out, it comes down to you and I being prepared for the Lord's coming. That's, quite frankly, friends, that's more important than an an exegetical study of Revelation. Revelation is important, and we're going to spend some time there. We're going there tonight, read a bunch out of there. But being prepared for the end times is really what the most important thing is. And for me as a pastor who stands accountable for your souls... It is, it is one of the most important things to me is that you are ready for the coming of the Lord, that you are prepared to face whatever needs to be faced for the sake of Jesus Christ. And uh, I'm so thankful that the Lord has led me into this conversation because, quite frankly, I've been chomping at the bit to talk about it for a long time. But God knows He is the great orchestrator of time, right? He knows when the right moment is. So, let's get to it, shall we? Jesus uh, starts and concludes the book of Revelation with basically the same thing. In chapter 1, verse 3, and chapter 22, verse 7, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keeps those things which are written in it. For the time is near. There's a couple things I garner from that. Not just blessed is the person who reads it. Uh, Blessed is the person who keeps it. That means heeds to those things. Let's it change their life. And why? Because we have a recognition that the time is near. That's important. If we go all the way over to chapter 22, the very last chapter in the book of Revelation, in fact, the entire Bible, in verse 7, Jesus said these words, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And that doesn't mean keeps these pages, but that it's here. It's in our heart, and we follow it. We, we, the keep there is guard it. So the things that you learn about being prepared for the end times is something you should guard until your dying dying breath. Guard it. I didn't say hide it. Keep it. 
Don't let anything steal it from you. Now, I think with those two things, looking at the first words of Revelation and the last words of Revelation, it's pretty easy to see that Jesus thinks it's pretty important that we have an understanding, a knowledge of end times. Wouldn't you agree? I think that's important to the Lord. And my goal in this study is to, to the best of my ability, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is to break down the elements of the end times in as simple a way as possible so that we can understand it and so that we can respond to it. Because it doesn't do any good to just kind of purvey some information to you uh, that you walk away with going, all right, great study on end times. But that it's something that you not just understand, but that you know how to respond to it. Because remember, it said, blessed is he who reads it and keeps it. That's part of that response. Um, I'm not a Bible scholar by any stretch of the imagination, and I'm not undercutting myself. I'm not. I've not been to Bible college. I'm not, I don't have a, a degree from seminary. I am a student of the Word of God, and I'm a voracious student of the Word of God. I'm not just a reader of the book, but I'm a student of the book. And I'm, I'm kind of that way with just about everything that I do in life. My daughter, uh, Erica, bought me um, a little coffee cup, coffee um, pot uh, for Father's Day, I think, or something like that. And it's called a mocha pot. Now, I'm not going to get into it too deeply, but it's not mocha, as in everybody right now kind of your mouth watered because you thought of chocolate. It's M-O-K-A, and it's a special way to make espresso from the stovetop, quite frankly. And then, of course, I, what I'm talking about is I become a student of everything, just about everything. Diane will tell you, now I got a mocha pot, now I got a French press, now I got the frother, and I got the steamer, and, and what? Two mocha pots, and, uh, huh? Beans from around the world, a grinder, and, and, and now I actually bought a carafe because I'm going to study how to do cream art. I want to be able to make the little hearts and... You think you're coming over? So, <laughs> and so, uh, honest to goodness, I mean, I'm, Diane will tell you, I'm just that. In, when I get into something, I want to know is just about everything that I can know about it. And so, yeah, you might think, well, that's crazy. Watch, I'm watching YouTube videos on the better way to make a French press coffee. And I'm glad I watched that YouTube today because I found out that the 10 steps to doing it, I was only doing three of them. So, boy, tomorrow the coffee's going to be good, baby, let me tell you. But you're not invited. Anyway, <laughs> my point being, um, I'm, a, I'm a real student of just about everything that I, that I have a passion about. And um, I take that very seriously. And it's, it's the same with this. Uh, I don't step up behind the pulpit to just kind of, you know, I'm, I'm just a, a herald of information. I don't want that. You guys can get information on your own. But may there be revelation. Last week we began to talk about a part of the end times known in the Old Testament as Jacob's trouble. In the New Testament, through the words of Jesus, he called it the Great Tribulation. In that study, I made the point that one's viewpoint of the tribulation will be skewed one way or another based on one's viewpoint or belief about the rapture, and therefore I went very briefly over some varied positions in the rapture. I think all of us probably liked the pan theory the best, uh, that it's all going to pan out in the end. But um, I want to go over just 
a little bit of a review, and then we're going to get right into some stuff. So the first thing you had pre-tribulation rapture was one of them, and pre-tribbers expect that the rapture uh, will happen at any moment. What that is known as uh, is it is known as the doctrine of imminency. Uh, I wish I had a board that would work with the TV thing and everything else that we're doing because I'd love to be able to write some of this stuff down on my great big whiteboard. But it's actually known as the doctrine of imminency, uh, which is a theology that just says it could happen any second. That's really what that is talking about. Uh, the pre-tribbers believe that uh, this uh, the rapture of the church will happen prior to the seven-year period, thereby rescuing the church from having to go through any of the persecution that's spoken of in the Bible. And again, it, it's really kind of based on the doctrine of imminency. Uh, later on, I'll talk about that a little bit more. It's important for you to understand some of these aspects of it because they are the foundations of the specific doctrines, okay? Pre-tribulation rapture was the other one, and pre-tribbers expect the rapture um, uh, also, oh, I just did pre-trib, didn't I? Yeah, excuse me. Mid-tribulation rapture. Mid-tribbers believe that the rapture will happen somewhere at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the tribulation. It's a seven-year period, and at the three-and-a-half-year mark or middle of the tribulation, somewhere in that time frame, the rapture will take place, and God will rapture the church out. Typically, it's kind of thought of that it will happen right after Here's another theological term that we'll dig into later, right after a thing called the abomination of desolation. Well, there's a phrases that we use every day, right? You have any of that abomination of desolation coffee beans? I'll have some of that. No. Um, but the abomination of desolation is actually a phrase from the book of Daniel, uh, and Jesus also quoted that in Matthew chapter 24, where it describes a moment where the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple of God as God and sacrifices a defiled pagan sacrifice in the temple, okay? Another part of the end times is to believe that there is going to be another temple and that there will be sacrifices again. Just as a side note, whether there's ever another building or not, I'm not sure that's how God looks at it because now you and I are actually, don't you know that you are the temple of God? Yeah, think about that for a, a quick minute. So in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, it says, and, and there'll be some scriptures that I'm going to have you turn to, and we'll go there, but otherwise they should be on the screen. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31 says, forces shall be mustered by him, that's the Antichrist, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. So it's, a phrase, it's an Old Testament phrase that uh, is, is throughout the book of Daniel, and Jesus uh, talks about it again. We also see it in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures. I think I gave our media tech a page and a half of Scripture. So if we're going to have a Bible study, we might as well, I don't know, look in the Bible, right? Uh, Daniel 12, 11, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Does anybody know how long that is? Three and a half years, that's right. And so that we know happens in the middle 
of the seven-year tribulation because it says from the time that that happens, there'll be another 1,290 days, another three and a half years. So that's where uh, the pre-trib, excuse me, mid-trib, help me stay on on point, the mid-trib rapturists get their point of view. Also, there's a, a something that's spoken about the abomination of desolation in the book of Matthew. Matthew is a place that you're going to want to turn to, Matthew chapter 24, and you're going to want to put a mark, a marker, a bookmark or something there because we're going to go back and forth to Matthew chapter 24 a few times. They, same at home. Hope you have your Bibles out. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to read verses 15 through 22. Are you all ready? Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by prophet the Daniel standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But, uh, what did I say, through 22. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight not be, may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then, then again, that will be after the abomination of desolation, if you read it at face value, right? That happened, and then it says, and then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time no nor shall ever be and unless those days were shortened no flesh would be saved for the elect's sake those days will be shortened okay so there is the words of jesus is the relationship to the abomination of desolation so we have the pre-tribulation rapturist we have the mid-tribulation rapturist and the next thing because i'm only going to focus on four is the pre-wrath rapturist. Pre-rathers believe that the rapture will occur at the end, somewhere near the very end of the tribulation period or at near the end of the seven-year period, that, but it will happen just before the seven bowls of wrath, the wrath of God, are poured out. And we're obviously going to end up looking at some of the seven bowls and and there's lots of things that's mixed in this little brief rapture conversation that are things we need to look at uh, about end time so that you're prepared for the Lord's coming. Are you with me? Uh, and so it is believed, this is something maybe some people don't know, but it is believed that the actual rapture from, from the pre-wrath position it is believed that the actual rapture will occur at the same moment that the two witnesses come to life and are raptured into heaven. So you might be saying, well, there, what's the two witnesses? Well, that's another subject that we're going to be discussing, what's happening with the two witnesses when they are raptured. And so let's turn our Bibles, let's read a couple of scriptures just to kind of bring context to this brief synopsis. Turn your Bible with me to Revelation 16. Don't forget to keep a marker or something in Matthew 24 because we will be coming back to it. I want to read the seven bowls of wrath. Uh, uh, part of uh, the, the book of Revelation, and I want you to just get your head wrapped around the fact that this is a picture of the wrath of God, okay? Everybody say, it's the wrath of God. The seven bowls of wrath are the wrath of God against unbelievers and against the unrepentant, okay? So I'm going to start reading from verse 1. 
Um, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. How many would just say, no matter what rapture position there is, you hope you're not here for that, right? So be glad for pre-trib idea, be glad for mid-trib idea, and be glad for pre-wrath idea, because they all believe you'll be gone before at least that happens. First bowl, loathsome sores. Ay, ay, ay. What I want to uh, suggest to you, and you begin to notice about some of the things that happen with the trumpets and some of the things that happen with the seals and some of the things that happen with the bowls, is that they are identical or at least close to identical to the very same plagues that took place uh, when the children of Israel uh, were delivered from Exodus. That's important to note. There is a Almost everything we see in the Old Testament for us is is not only an occurrence that actually happened, but it also has a prophetic sense for us to look at things that will happen again. That's an important viewpoint of the Old Testament that you must keep in mind, especially when you think about end times through the eyes of Hebrew prophets, okay? So many of these things, we're going to read down them, and you'll be able to remember, wow, remember, remember in Egypt the boils? They all got boils, so loathsome sores. So the first, this verse 2, so the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Not cool. It ain't just a sore. Mike, it's a loathsome sore. You know, I've had sores, and I'm sure everybody's had sores before. I ain't never had a loathsome sore. Don't want to, I don't want to ever have one either, amen? Second bowl. Does this look familiar? The sea turns to blood. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Third bowl. The waters turned to blood. Again, total correlation with what took place in the Exodus. Uh, Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Fourth bowl. Men are scorched. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the power was given to him to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with great heat. And this blows my mind. And they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Can I help you see a little something here? I think the fact that we're going to see that this is something that's repeated a few times in the wrath of God moments, it's almost like God is still saying and giving people an opportunity to repent. He is a God filled with grace and compassion, isn't he? But isn't it just off the charts crazy that even in the midst of this, people will blaspheme the name of God? What does that say? They know where it's coming from. <laughs> I don't get that. That's just stupid. Fifth bowl, darkness and pain. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. 
They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Then the sixth bowl, Euphrates, dried up. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. Anybody else remember one of the plagues from Egypt? Coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to battle, to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Verse 15, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now that's something to be noted. That right there, Jesus says that he hasn't even come yet. Swallow that one. Right there, after the sixth bowl, he says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Seventh bowl, the earth utterly shaken. Remember that this is a tribulation period unlike the earth has ever seen or ever will see, known in the Old Testament as, anybody remember? Jacob's trouble, that's right. Anybody know why it's called Jacob's trouble? I'll tell you why. It's because the end times still revolve around the children of Israel. And what happens to the children of Israel affects the entire planet. Okay? That's a whole other study to understand why it's called Jacob's trouble, because God is dealing with what's happening around Israel. Israel's still his chosen people, not because they chose him, but because he chose them. And all the earth is blessed because of them. And in fact, everyone who blesses Jerusalem and prays for Jerusalem is blessed. Okay, so there's an important thing to understand on that. So then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on earth. Hello, somebody. This is an earthquake that like has never happened since men have been on earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail, remember that from the Exodus as well, great hail stone about the weight of a talent uh, uh, fell from heaven, and men I can't believe it. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. The wrath of God. Um, the great tribulation. That leads us to another part of the conversation that, again, remember, I'm still in the synopsis of the raptures, and I kind of wanted to bring some context of Scripture uh, more context of Scripture than I gave last week. We also, I said to you that the pre-rathers believe that the, the actual rapture takes place 
at the same time that the two witnesses rise from the dead. They're dead in the streets for three days because the people killed them and all the world will see them. That's easy to understand nowadays with the technology we have, right? They'll lay in the street dead for three days and then God will breathe the spirit of life in them. They'll come back to life and will rapture from the earth and all the world will see them rapture for the earth and they will then begin to mourn. Now, I'm saying all this because we're going to go back to the words of Jesus about this whole deal. And if you'll remember from the onset, I said that, that, that every word, John's words, Peter's words, Joel's words, Daniel's words, Paul's words, every other, every other writer and author in this book must match what Jesus had to say, not the other way around. That is a critical point of view in terms of understanding comprehensively in times at, with the face value hermeneutic that we talked about. So go with me to chapter 11, Revelation, and we'll read just a, a few verses about the uh, two witnesses, in case you've never heard of that before. More than likely, nearly every one of you probably have, because you, you're here tonight because you're interested in end times, and most people who are interested in end times have already done some study or been to some uh, seminar or something about it. The two witnesses, starting at uh, chapter 11, uh, verse 1 through 14. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. They will tread the holy city underfoot, for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth, and if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours, devours their enemies. Uh, a couple of powerful dudes. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. prophecy. And they have the water, they, excuse me, they have the power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. There's always been some speculation about who the two witnesses uh, are. Some people believe it may be Moses and Elijah. Um, I'm not sure. There's no reason really to have to nail that down to who it may be. Then verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those people, excuse me, then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their bodies to be put in the grave. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these true prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Boy, things have gone a long ways when now everybody's passing gifts to each other because there's two dead bodies laying in the streets. Mm-mm-mm-mm. News is sure looking pretty real right about now, isn't it? Now, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. Remember, 
The whole world sees it. It's televised. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. God, you're cool. And great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. <clears throat> in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. If you don't know about the woes, there was an angel that flew over and went, Whoa! 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 There's three woes. That's not woe as in W-H-O-A. Let's slow this horsey down. That's in woe, uh, W-O-E as in trouble cometh. And it's actually, if you read on, you'll find that it's right after this occurrence that the seven bowls of wrath are poured out. Therein lies the pre-wrath concept. Okay? Um, let's just move right on to the post-tribulation rapture. Post-tribbers hold to the belief, uh, and this is the most ominous position, the most dreadful position. It does have an element of possibility and an element of truth. Quite frankly, my estimation, my understanding of the Word of God, the only two of these that actually carry weight scripturally is either pre-wrath or post-trib. And I'll walk you through that because remember, we're going to interpret Scripture how? Literally or, how's it called? Face value. Right on? Because we'll let Scripture explain itself. Let Scripture speak for Scripture instead of reading between the lines. Right on? Safest bet to do. The beauty of this, and I'll, get, I'll, I'll finish the post-tribbers pretty quick. Post-tribbers hold to the belief that believers will go through the entirety of the tribulation encompassing both Satan's rap, wrath, because there is Satan's wrath on the saints, and God's wrath on the unbelievers and unrepentant. Okay, so there's two wraths during the tribulation. And many people, uh, especially from the pre-tribulation point of view, don't delineate between those two wrath positions. They believe that even what Satan does is a part of God's wrath. Okay? Those that believe in pre-wrath or post-tribulation delineate the difference between what is Satan's wrath against the saints of God and God's wrath against the unbelieving and unrepentant. Okay? Um, let me see, where am I? Oh, yeah. Uh, however, the true believers and the 144,000 sealed by God will be miraculously protected during the outpouring of God's wrath. Now, uh, we'll also t have to take a look at what is the 144,000. So there's so many subjects about end times that are just wrapped up in the synopsis of the raptures, okay? And quite, that is what I'm doing. I'm just doing a quick review. And I find when I wrote the review down, oh, we got to talk about that, we got to talk that. We got to talk about that. Here's the beauty of the post-trib position. If you equate it back to Exodus, because we saw some comparables to the children of Israel and in Exodus, in terms of the that was the wrath of God on Egypt, right? But there was a group of people called Israel that were huge number of people that were in the land of Goshen. 
And during all of the plagues that were poured out on Egypt, they did not come to the land of Goshen. When the hailstone fell, no hail fell in Goshen. When it got dark in Egypt, it was light in Goshen. Woo! Glory. So, see, there's even a positive side to the most dreadful position. Which the most dreadful position is, is that we're actually here when the wrath of God is poured out, poured out. But for those who are believers, I believe there will be a super natural providence and protection over them that will be so astounding it's unbelievable because that's what happened during the first exodus will there be struggle sure when all the waters turned to blood you know even the believers will be rationing water they did that during the time of exodus as well okay so that's just a part of the harmony or parallel about the possibility of post-trib and I want us to throw that out as a possibility. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So whether we are out of here before the wrath of God or whether we are miraculously protected during the wrath of God, we're not called to the wrath of God. Come on, somebody. All right? Oh, so then we had this phrase about the 144,000 because not only... Will the believers be protected should they be there in that position be correct? But there's 144,000 that will be protected, and they're in Revelation chapter 7. So why don't you turn to Revelation chapter 7, and let's take a quick gander at that. Everybody all right? I'm getting more into just the, you know, let's open the Bible and do some line upon line and, and uh, open it up, although I am still in review. <laughs> Crazy. My reviews last longer than some of my lessons. Uh, Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. One hundred, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Remember again that the entirety of all that's going on right now revolves around God's chosen people, Israel, and we are blessed because of them. Are you with me? So in all of these uh, possibilities of when the rapture will occur are varying elements of end times construct of which I think I, I, I believe it's important that we go over them in detail eventually, uh, again, to name a few. The, what, there was the doctrine of eminence. There was the abomination of desolation. Those are theological words. The Antichrist, understanding the difference between Satan's wrath and God's wrath. I think regardless of what position that you take, 
that it is important that you walk away from this being able to draw a line of uh, delineation between what is Satan's wrath and what is God's wrath. That's an important element of understanding the end times. What else we got? We got uh, the two witnesses, the 144,000, and there are other elements as well. There are many pieces and parts of this puzzle. Uh, so, that, like I said, this is just a small list that I've mentioned. Um, last week, I talked uh, also quite a bit about Bible interpretation, and in particular about face value uh, or literal interpretation. And I suggested to you that the safest, most important, and most valuable hermeneutic uh, interpretation of the Bible that you can have is that of face value. If it says this, then let it mean that. Otherwise, you have to suppose that it possibly means something else or to try to make it mean something else. I don't think that we need to be reading between the lines and supposing, well, I think it means that. We're going to look at a couple things tonight where face value interpretation is going to pretty much blow some positions away, okay? Because you're going to easily see, well, that's not what it says, but that's what someone has caused it to say. And for so, for so many years, people have believed it. <laughs> Churches have been uh, built around it. Um, allow Scripture to speak for itself. We also have to remember that literal uh, interpretation also includes understanding that Scripture, that verse in context to the rest of the verse, possibly even the rest of the book that it's written in by that author. author. We have to also look at it in, in terms of its cultural context. We have to look at it in terms of the political climate at the time that it was written and what it meant to the people that were there. Uh, and we have to look at it also in harmony with all other scriptures on the same subject. Because if it doesn't harmonize with other scriptures on the same subject, your Bible study ain't done yet. Okay? Uh, so face value interpretation doesn't, as I said, read between the lines. It just doesn't. Uh, it doesn't cherry pick a portion of text in order to fit one's opinion. I say resoundingly no. Our opinion should match what the Scripture says, whether we like it or not, not make the Scripture match our opinion. That's not how this is supposed to work. Okay? That's a good place where you should have at least said amen just because you're tired. So, let's get to our subject, tribulation. And we will come back to a more thorough look at the rapture later on because it's still an important issue. I'm not, I have not exhausted that subject. I took the subject of rapture as a detour from tribulation because you are, you're going to view tribulation through the lens of how you view rapture. Okay, so that was just a, a quick detour. And now we're back off detour to the main uh, path. Our primary subject is right now is Jacob's trouble, uh, the Great Tribulation. Now, with all that we've talked about in this brief detour, especially, especially, let me focus you for a minute, especially as it relates to face value hermeneutics, let's now go to Matthew chapter 24. Now, remember, we're going to read supposing only one thing that it means what it says, okay? 
There are some in the theological realms from different points of view that say that Matthew 24 isn't written for the Gentiles, it isn't written for the church, that it was written for Israel only. I'm sorry, that ain't in here. That's not in here. Okay? So that's a supposition. Someone is supposing that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Matthew, 20, Matthew 23 was for everybody, but Matthew 24 is just for Israel. That's a supposition. And you would not be using face value interpretation of Matthew 24 with that idea in mind. Okay? So we're going to look at Matthew 24 now with face value interpretation. Okay? Are you ready? I'm going to look at verses 21 through 22 to start with. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake those days will be shortened. Believe it or not, verse 22 is a pre-tribulation foundational scripture. Uh, pre-tribulation rapture foundational scripture. That somewhere in there that means rapture. It didn't say rapture. It did say the days would be shortened, but you'd have to make a supposition, a theory, to say that that is what is being spoken of if you look at it at face value. So we need to face the facts that, uh, and a lot of folks think that things are going to get better somehow. That... There's still going to be a great revival before the Lord comes back. Oh, I think there probably will be another great awakening. But it's not an awakening like you all have thought about the word awakening up until this point. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to wake up. A lot of believers that's been in their stupor that's going to wake up. If I go with that word at face value... If the church begins to wake up, that in and of itself is a great awakening. Can I get a witness? So we're not going to read too deep into it. Let's take it at face value on what it has to say. So friends, anyone who looks at the world or looks at world's history and thinks that somehow where we're at right now that things are going to get better, you're looking through rose-colored glasses. Can I help you with something? And I am, I am not a doom and gloom preacher. You all know that. But Diane will attest to the fact that I've had a very clear vision on what is going to be happening in the country, in the world, and I, 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 I always fall short of, I, you know, I don't think I'm prophesying because I don't consider myself a prophet, okay? But I don't believe that there's any chance things are going to get better in our society or in our culture, okay? Things can get better for the believer. In fact, if post-trib is true, it's going to be pretty sweet when all that stuff is going down, but the believers are somehow protected from it. That, think about that for a minute, all right? So the Bible does not teach us that things are going to get better. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall ever be. There's nothing in that scripture that I can read between the lines and go, well, somewhere in there, things are going to get rosy again. 
Now, that's not doom and gloom. We, we get to walk in peace, and we get to walk in strength, and we get to have courage. We are the redeemed of the Lord. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, okay? So, you know, we don't have to look at this as doom and gloom, but it is on the horizon. It is in the forecast. I'm not like a Michigan meteorologist, so I'm not going to say when it is because I'll just have it wrong. The Bible teaches us that difficult days are coming, and this fact alone at face value should help us get serious about God today. This is critical, y'all. If you're not serious about God today, you are not going to get serious when the kitchen gets hot. Not, well, I'll wait. You're supposing that somehow you can be stronger in worse times than you are now? No, friends. we got to get serious about God before all these things begin to hit. That's why I'm calling this preparing for the coming of the Lord. God has given me a mandate and I believe a mantle to prepare His people for His coming. Not all people. I'm not called to all people. I'm called... To all of you, and I'm called to all of you that are watching and tuning in right now. God didn't call me to go down the road and fix and get everybody else in order. He called me to make sure that the saints of God that I have charge over, that God has called me to pastor, are ready for my coming, the Lord said. And in my heart, he said, I'm going to give you a special anointing to do so. It's not going to be an anointing that everyone's going to like. I don't like it. No mantle is sweet and easy. It's heavy. But for those who choose not to get serious, I can tell you right now, it's going to be too late to get serious with God when all these things hit. We're going to need to be strong to face them, and we're going to need to be strong to go through it. Because what if, and remember, I've made this statement, I pray, and I've made this statement for years, I pray that pre-tribulation is correct. I pray that it is. That would be awesome. But you and I better be real enough to face, what if it's not? And if it is true, what have we lost? But if it's not true and one of the others is true and you've never heard about the possibility, what have you lost? Are you hearing me? So I'm going to make us face other possibilities. How you work out your salvation is between you and God. I'm not the one to crack the whip on how you believe, but I am the one that God has called to this place to share the truth as he has shown me, and I will do so. So Jesus said that when the tribulation hits, there'll be many that fall away. Right there in Revelation chapter 24, let's just back up a little bit to verse 10. Oh dear, let's do verse 9. Uh, maybe we should do verse 8. Matthew 24, what did I say? I'm sorry, Matthew 24. I'm going to start with verse 8. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. 
And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Based on face value, when will the end come? When this gospel is preached to all the nations. Some might say, well, that, that, that's happening already. It's not happening already. But there is an occurrence that will happen where all the earth will see it. An angel will fly over the earth. And he will cry, whoa, 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 proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all the earth will hear it. I don't think this whole all nations will hear it is a missionary thing. Missionaries are doing a fantastic job in that, don't get me wrong. And they are making that, that happen. But I don't think this is a TV thing, a media thing. I think this is a, a, a historically angelic, heavenly thing. So it's important to note the harmony between the New Testament teachings on end times and especially the words of Jesus and the Old Testament writings through the voice of prophets and get the harmony between the two. So when Jesus was asked by his disciples, why, when, excuse me, when will this take place and what will it look like? Right? That's how this started off, isn't it? Let's see. Verse 1 of chapter 24, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said, do you, see, do you not see all these things? And surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left uh, here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Verse 3, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Imagine that moment. So, and here's where I'm going to close for tonight. We're actually going to do this for an hour, and I'm better off to leave you right here than to just try to get into the next subject. But here's the best place to close, okay? Remember, we've worked through the whole rapture synopsis. I've given you some scriptural background for a few theological doctrinal phrases. Uh, and I've talked to you a little bit more about hermeneutic face value talk to you just briefly about the role that the children of Israel play in this. And we began to take a look at a couple things in Matthew, and especially right there, Jesus said, or excuse me, his disciples said, show us, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now go with me to, no, I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to say this paragraph, and then we will come back next week, and we'll pick it up at that scripture. If I go to the next scripture, I'm too deep to get, get out. So <laughs> when his disciples asked Jesus when these things would happen, what Jesus did was he compared two Old Testament events. It was first, his first answer to them was to take two Old Testament events and use them as comparisons to what things will be like. And Jesus said that it's going to be like the time of Noah, and it's going to be like the time of Lot. And this is an important element in end times comparison. I'm done. 
Hopefully you'll come back next week for the rest of the story. How about a question or two, if there is one? Yes, ma'am, you have a question? Let me, let me, I'll hold the mic, but I want, so the folks on the live stream can hear it. Check one, is it on? There we go. In the time of Noah, uh, I'm thinking of the promise of a rainbow because I think like that. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> uh, so we've all along thought that he promised he wouldn't do that again. Well, he isn't going to destroy the world with a flood again. You're oh, correct. Okay. You're correct. Because that's what the rainbow was, as a reminder to him to never again judge or destroy the world with a flood. Okay? Didn't say he'll never, he'll never judge the world again. That was a good question. I thought you were going to make me go to Noah and Lot, and I'm like, no, this is where we stop. One more. I'll only take one more if there's any at all. Okay, let me come back there. It's a question, right? I'm taking questions. All right. Would it be fair to say that when you were talking, when the Bible talks about how the people will blaspheme him for all the things that he's doing, would it be fair to say that they're doing that because, as like they are today, these people keep believing that, that God wouldn't do such things because he loves them so much? Mm. I think they, because they don't believe yeah. what we believe. I get your question. I think that sin will have run its course so deeply. I know my cameramen are struggling right now. Good job, Cole. Nice job, by the way. <laughs> uh, part of the uh, study that we're going to do is about the fact that sin will run its course. Sin will come to its fullness, and when sin comes to its fullness, degenerate man no longer actually has the ability to see past the sin, and so they will curse God even in the midst of it, okay? But most of it has to do with the fact that sin has reached full maturity, and lawlessness and the spirit of lawlessness has taken over everyone who is a, who is a non-believer and unrepentant, because there's two things. The unrepentant would speak of what? Believers that were believers but aren't anymore. Mm. Mm. All right, that's the only two questions that I'm going to take. Uh, I'd love to take more, but I'm, I don't want to just extend this because it's fun. All right, stand with me, and I'll send you out blessed, and let's get back together Wednesday night and pick it up from Noah and Lot. Who'd ever thought that would be our conversation on the coming of the Lord? Father, I thank you for today. The, tonight's been an awesome time. It is so fun to dig into your word. And as I always pray, guard us from error. Help us walk in balance with what your word says. Help us walk out our salvation with fear and with trembling recognizing that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a loving God. Ha <laughs> Thank you that you put both those things together. We give you honor and glory tonight. I speak blessings over each person in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful night.
Oh, by the way, I won't be doing a tomorrow morning video. All of you online, I won't be doing a tomorrow morning video, so don't look for 7.14 in the morning. I will be back.